If you've got a Bible, please could you turn to Acts chapter 5. Um, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. Uh, we as a church are going through the book of Acts, as the screen helpfully tells us uh, behind me. And today um, we are meeting possibly the most striking passage so far and maybe the most striking in some ways passage in the book of Acts, as you will see very shortly. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 1. The words will appear on the screen behind me, I imagine. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Just to explain that, also um, in the verses before, a guy called Barnabas in the church had sold a load of land and given all the money from that uh, to the church, okay? With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? So we're asking at this point, look, he's cross. Is he cross because Ananias and so have been a bit stingy? Is this about money that's going on here? As we'll see in a second, that's not the main issue at all, actually. This is what he says. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? So he's not interested in like, well, you're not giving enough. So what's the problem? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Seems the problem is they have claimed, they pretended to give more than they've actually given. That's the issue here. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. A few years ago, there was this New Frontiers conference, okay? New Frontiers is the group of churches that we're part of. And there was a very well-known uh, New Frontiers leader who was at the front on the stage. And he was giving prophetic words to people, okay? And if you've been in a situation like this before, you'll, you know how it goes. It's kind of uh, uh, you at the back in the stripy T-shirt, okay? Uh, God's saying this to you. Just, by the way, in a situation like stripy T-shirts, they usually work pretty well, actually. Uh, so you in the back with the stripy T-shirt, God's saying this, encourage you. They go, oh, thanks. And people pray for them and that's that, okay? And they, he comes to this couple uh, that are sitting kind of over here. And he he goes, could you guys stand up? Okay, I, I just really feel God is calling you to be like Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> I would imagine at that point there may have been a sharp intake of breath in the room. And anyone, I think, if I'd been standing by those people, I might have done this. <laughs> okay. Uh, someone sneaked on the stage and whispered something in the guy's, this church leader's ear. And he said, quickly said, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I meant Aquila and Priscilla. <laughs> now, just so you know, Aquila and Priscilla are a slightly more heroic couple in the New Testament than Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, while, uh, while that's uh, just a little unfortunate error to make, and why, why that is the case is obviously, whatever you, if you've come across this passage before or not, whatever question may flood your mind from this passage, one thing we all know for sure is, you don't want anyone telling you you're like these guys, do you? I mean, like, come on. I mean, this is the, one of the most infamous examples in the New Testament of God doing something like this, okay? 
Now today, uh, rather unoriginally, I'm afraid, I would like to take exactly the same approach to this passage as I did in the last talk we did, which had a striking passage in a different way. And I, lit- I want to address some questions, and exactly the same as before, I want to address three questions about this passage. Okay, exactly the same uh, approach I took when we looked at the passage on healing. Just so you know, if you weren't here for that passage, this three questions method, this has never been done before. This is cutting edge sermon technology, right? Okay, just so you know. But um, uh, I've got three questions, and I'm, to be honest with the passage like this, we might as well go for the jugular, so let's kick off as we mean to go on. Here are the three questions I think this passage raises I want to address. One, how can we worship a God who kills people? How can we worship a God who kills people? Yep, let's go in there, shall we? I don't think there's any point beating around the bush. Uh, Second one is, how can God treat his own people like this? And third one, why does God, we'll just right at the end, why does God do this here and not elsewhere? Uh, he does it sometimes elsewhere, but this is rare. Why is it? Why this sin? Why these people? Okay, and that's the plan. So let's go in. As I said, straight for the jugular. How can we worship a God who kills people? Now, uh, there's much more that can be said on this matter, but I think in many ways this is a quite a straightforward passage uh, to work out what it means. We don't have to go into lots of Greek words or this and that and this to work out what is actually being said here. Luke, the author of Acts, if we're asking, what is he trying to communicate to us? We got that. It's it's here for us. And he's trying to do two things. He's trying to tell us about an event that he thinks happened in history where this couple went to see a church leader in uh, mid-30s AD Jerusalem, and they ended up both dying. Okay, He's explaining something that, that happened. Okay. But also, with the way he's written this, he's clearly trying to explain to us a little bit of why he thinks that happened. And it's implicit, it's implied, but it's clearly here. That actually they died because God ended their lives in some sort of judgment. I think it's very hard to read this passage and not come away with that impression. Now, while it's hard, uh, many uh, I've had uh, several church leaders, uh, Christian leaders, try to fudge this and remove God's judgment entirely from this passage. Uh, but whereas some Christians may try to fudge this, I've found uh, those outside the Christian community have been slightly more clear-sighted, possibly, on this one. I've had an unusual experience preparing this sermon. One of the most helpful resources that I found was some reasonably militant atheist websites, actually, on this and related stories in the Bible uh, that very helpfully uh, pointed out something that a lot of Christian commentators miss when they're honing on this passage is, this isn't the only time in the Bible stuff like this happens. These websites very helpfully filled me in on this. In fact, they gave me lots of examples in great detail. In fact, one of them, one site, uh, came to an actual mathematical calculation of how many deaths there are in the Bible down to God's direct intervention. Okay, this is the number they came to. 2,821,364. Okay. You see, thorough. These websites are thorough. The, the mass is reasonably speculative, actually, uh, but there's a thoroughness there. Now, guys, I'm not afraid to say this, you know. Birthday is I'm 39. I've got some years now. I'm sharp, okay? I'm a sharp cookie when it comes to these things. And uh, when I was doing this, I was looking at the website. Suddenly, it dawned on me. Okay, I realized, wait a minute, being sharp as I am. These guys aren't putting this up here to help me in my sermon prep, are they? <laughs> I was wait a minute. They're not trying to help Christian ministers with these websites. What's that website for? websites for a very simple reason they're asking the question that I've asked how could Christians worship a God who kills people a couple of weeks ago we saw a guy driver uh, we didn't see it but we saw on the news probably we saw a guy drive a car into a crowd of people just outside the house of commons killing at least three of them 
and then stabbing a policeman trying to do more damage, okay? And uh, when stuff like that happens, we reach for words that we wouldn't often use. It wasn't just the tabloids last week that were pulling words like evil out of the bag to describe that individual, okay? How then can we see a God who do such things and not treat him the same? That's the objection that we would be given by lots of people in the world today. And on the surface of it, I think it's a formidable objection for us. However, when we just scratch slightly deeper, I think we find quite quickly it's based on a fairly substantial misunderstanding. Actually, we shouldn't treat God the same as we would treat people who kill others, because although it sounds a little simple, we've got to recognize it's quite important. God is not the same as people, okay? God is not the same as people. It sounds simple, but this is the case. I had a kid I used to teach, year 11, cocky little lad, and he comes to me one day, I've disproved the Bible. I go, oh, well, thank you for that. that brilliant. What is it, guys? You look at this. It says here, God is a jealous God. He had the verse. Okay, well, good. He's, this guy didn't do any homework for me ever, but he worked this stuff out. It's crazy, okay? Uh, God is a jealous God. Okay, here it says, don't be jealous. Done it? God, sir, you can, Sunday mornings are free for you from now on, mate. You, I've done it. I've disproved the whole Bible. He, didn't, he just didn't get it, okay? No, no, no. You don't understand. God's not the same as people. Yeah, yeah, obviously, there's a line of, of, of God's values that he's not just doing, say what I do, what I say, don't do what I do. No, no, that's not the case. There's a line, there's, a, there's an integrity there, but it doesn't mean that God is bound by exactly the same rules as us. In the same way with my kids, I hope that I set a moral example for my kids, I hope, but my kids go to bed at 8 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> doesn't mean I have to go to bed at 8 o'clock in the evening. I stay out later, because even with parents and kids, there's a difference. With God and people, there is a significant difference. The Bible tells us that we were made in God's image, but that does not mean we are exactly the same as God. And in the area of bringing life and death, that is quite clearly the case. My problem with the analysis of that website, actually, is not that their figure of two million, whatever it was, is too high. I think, in reality, they've considerably underestimated the role that God has to play in human death. Because God, in a way, is directly responsible for every death of every human who's ever lived and has ever died. Now, I recognize that seems hugely confrontational, but just think about that for a second, because I would imagine anybody who believes in God, Christian or not, that would be an implicit understanding they'd have that's not a negative thing, actually that's a positive thing. So whether someone's a Christian or not, when someone dies, often they'd say words like this, God's called them home. We'd talk like that, wouldn't we? That wouldn't just be in the church. Or God took that person for whatever reason or a reason we don't understand. King David says a very similar thing in Psalm 31. He said to God, my times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. What's he saying? He's saying that God knows when I'm going to be born and when I'm going to die. But not just he knows, he has a significant say over those events. My times are in your hands. And it's kind of understood by anyone who's thought about God in any depth at all that in God's basic job description is bringing life and bringing death to his creatures, okay? Just to be very clear, that is in none of our job descriptions, okay? We have a day on find your calling (laughs) and someone goes, I've got it, thanks, I'm here to end people's lives. You know what, at that point we would probably push you in a slightly different direction and you know, that's evil, You, you can't do that, that's not for us. But actually for God... 
Uh, God can do that, and in many ways, he has to do that to be God. God is the one in charge of life and death. But the Bible does go slightly further on this one. The Bible would also tell us that death, in a sense, is not just overseen by God. It always carries at least a hint of the judgment of God. Now, I want to be really clear on this. What I do not mean is that if somebody dies early, they are somehow more liable to judgment than someone who dies old. Okay? The Bible does not teach that. I'm not saying someone who dies peacefully, uh, you know, so suddenly, is more of a sinner than someone who dies peacefully. No way. That This kind of close correlation between sin and death that we see here is, there are a number of instances in the Bible of it, but on the grand scheme of things, it's incredibly unusual. Okay? However, the Bible does paint a link between sin and death. And I think the clearest way to see it would be uh, the way Paul describes things. Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 5, he talks about uh, death. And he says that death entered the world through sin. That's how he talks about it. That death entered the world through sin. And Paul's following the biblical teaching from the very start that death isn't just the natural and inevitable consequence of having bodies like these in a world like this with the laws of physics as they are. Okay, so we usually think of death. Okay, that, that's not how the Bible thinks of death and Paul wouldn't think of that. He says, no, no, this was something that wasn't here. It wasn't meant to be here and it came in as a result of human sin. And this idea of death entering into the world, I think we can see this a little bit like this. I think this is the picture that Paul's painting. It's as if when God made people, he, let's imagine he made them in this kind of world here and it's like he put a door at the side and on the other side of that door was this rampaging monster called death. Okay, And he very clearly said, I, he's not meant to be in here. Okay, I'm locking this door. Okay, guys, here we go. This is what you do. Now, God in his wisdom says to us, as all humans, says to us, look, please follow me. Uh, please, uh, look, I, I'm, I love you. I, I've got wisdom. I know how things work. Kind of stick with me here. Um, but he also said, very simply, it's in the creation story, and in a sense, it's something that, that we all have gone away from he says look but if you decide to rebel against me and live your way actually the just punishment is I'm going to have to open that door and in the story at the beginning he does he says look don't eat from the tree if you do on the day when you, when you eat from it you'll die okay and what happens is they eat from the tree they rebel against God they decide to go their way and God as a consequence opens the door and in a sense the monster comes in death comes in and now affects all of us so in that sense when each of us dies it carries with it a reminder of judgment. There's an involvement of God in those things. But I need to say this, and the last point I'll say on this, and it's very, very important. Although God is responsible for death, God takes absolutely no pleasure in death. I think one of the main concerns we'd have with this stuff is that not just that God's responsible. I think if you think about God, he has to be responsible. Okay? But it's the idea that he sometimes takes delight or joy in this part of his job, this role that he has, or even that he's completely indifferent. So many people, I think, would see God a bit like this. And uh, that kind of image, what does it portray about God? It would say he's angry. But I think there's a kind of gleeful menace about God smiting people. That he's like, ha ha, this is actually, I'm really enjoying this smiting business. Okay? How could you worship a God like that? I'd ask the same question. How could you worship a God like that? The God of the Bible is not like that. Others, though, would see God a bit like this. Very different image. Just about see it. But you can just about see he's not really smiling very much. The kind of grim reaper sort of image. 
It's not a delight about it, but it's just a cold indifference. It's like fate plays its part, and God, if he's there, he just doesn't really care. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I don't care. It's completely different to what's going on, which is shocking for us because we are not indifferent to death. We really are not. How could you worship a God like that? Passive and indifferent to the lives he's taken away. Again, I'd ask that question. But the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is responsible for every death that's ever happened and ever will, but he takes delight in absolutely none of them. Ezekiel 18.23 nails this for us, okay? Ask the question to us. It says, Ezekiel writes this. No, God, God, Ezekiel records God saying this. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Just to say, what does he mean by the wicked? Okay, well, we've got a case study in Acts 5, haven't we? Uh, you might not see it, but there's a wickedness about what Ananias and Sapphira do. So we can take them, who are the wicked? Ananias and Sapphira, that'd be an example. So we can ask the question, well, God asked the question, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Well, let's think, on that day in Acts 5, what was God's mindset that day? Did he finish that day and say, you know what? Whew, I nipped that one in the bud, didn't I? I didn't want that stuff ruining my church right at the start. Basically, pretty good day at the office today. Is that how God treated that day? Let's see. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? That's the way of saying no, okay? No. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? What was God looking for in Ananias and Sapphira? He was not looking forward to the day he could snuff them out and make a real point for generations to come and sermons like this. Now he's looking down, going, he could see the sin festering, and he's thinking, I really, I want these guys to succeed. I want them to turn away. They've got good people around. They've got Barnabas and Peter and John. They've got wise people with them. Surely they'll turn around. The Holy Spirit's there. The Holy Spirit is in their midst all over the place here. Surely they'll turn around. That's what I want to happen. But for some reason, it got to a point where God, we don't know why, but it got to a point where God felt, no, I've got to step in now. But that grieved him. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Passage continues, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. If you want to see this teaching in three dimensions, the Bible gives us that too. And it gives us it on the incredible occasion where the God who passed the death sentence on the entire human race goes to a funeral. See, in John's gospel, God in the person of Jesus uh, goes to the funeral of his friend Lazarus. And Mary, Lazarus' sister, takes Jesus to the tomb. And around him, the people are mourning and weeping all around him. And, he's, uh, uh, and Jesus is left to respond. And how does he respond? He says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept. He cried like we do at death. But if you know anything about that passage, there's always a question mark here because you wonder why is he crying because usually for us when we cry at a funeral it's because of questions of loss it's like I'll never get to say that to that person again they'll never get to do that thing they were hoping to do again now if you know that story you know that definitely wasn't why Jesus was crying because a couple of minutes later he rose Lazarus from the dead okay so why is he weeping well surely Jesus is weeping at death itself isn't he it's impression I get from that passage God is experiencing firsthand the futility and despair of death. The result of that judgment that he justly passed on the human race. And what does he do in the face of that? He weeps. 
They're not tears of regret. He wasn't thinking, oh, I've overdone this. What have I done? No, but they certainly are tears of empathy. He knows how much it hurts us, and it hurts him too. And if for, you, for some of you, even as we go through this, you think, this is too close to home for me because how could God have been responsible in that death? Because that death hurt me, and it still hurts me, and it's still in my mind. There'd be many, many questions that we'd have about those things. But one thing we know is that just as God didn't delight in the death of even Ananias and Sapphira and wept over the death of Lazarus, there is a grief at the heart of God at every death that happens. That's the God that we worship. Now, there's more that could be said about this. We could, I could talk more about how, well, obviously, death is not the end either. That's a context that the atheist website certainly don't have. But I think we spent enough on that one. So let's go on to the second question uh, that we'd ask, which is slightly different. Uh, and I think it would be one which most of us, if we're Christians, would have asked about this passage. How can God treat his people like this? Let's back up a little bit to explain why I think this is such a big deal for us as Christians. When someone becomes a Christian, the Bible paints the picture as us coming out from under the shadow of God's judgment and coming into his love. Okay? There is a huge change that happens when someone becomes a Christian. Okay? If you're not a Christian here, we'd love to talk more about that. And as I'm explaining this from a Christian perspective, looking back, I'd love you to consider this looking forward at the possibility there is uh, for this. And to put that in a different way, it's like naturally speaking, because we've all turned away from God, we relate to God primarily as our judge. So the kind of ways we could look at our relationship with God, but primarily God would be our judge. Okay, And that's why death is a curse for us naturally, because it simply fast tracks us to the judgment, at which point on the basis of what we've done, we haven't got a hope. We will be separated from God forever. Okay, We Naturally, we relate to God as judge. But when we trust Jesus with our lives, our relationship with God completely changes and we relate to him primarily according to a completely different image. Okay? What is the main most helpful image used in the Bible for Christians? Question to the floor coming, not rhetorical question, just to warn you. Okay? What's the image used in the Bible for our relationship with God? What is it? God's our Father. Okay? It's completely changed. Think of the difference of that. God is judge, God is Father. Yes, as Christians will still be judged, But on the basis of the work of Jesus, God the Father has found a way to forgive us and bring us through so we can enjoy his fatherhood forever. Okay? That's amazing. And so for Christians, our old relationship with God as our judge was characterized by, well, technically hostility and opposition. There's a sense in which God was against us in some ways. Okay? But then... Our new relationship with God, God as our Father, well, that changes. Now, God's attitude to us is one of favor and unconditional love. To put that in a simple way, this, God, who rules in heaven, who can do anything he wants, acts for our good in the things he does. Can you see what a huge change that is? It's good, isn't it? Is it good? Yeah, I wonder whether the reticence may be slightly because you could see what the question is now. How on earth uh, is what God does to Ananias and Sapphira evidence of unconditional love and favor? These guys are part of his church. Uh, They're members of God's community. Now, while I think that is an excellent question, 
which I would say because I just asked it, you know. But anyway, if you were thinking that question, I think it's an excellent question too. And uh, we're going to come to that in a few minutes. I don't want to rush actually to that question too quickly because, and one simple reason, the passage doesn't rush to that question, okay? It's like in Luke's mind, that might have been in his mind when he did this, this, write this passage, but there's nobody then going, oh, just to tie up a few loose ends here, I just want to explain how this works. Nothing like that. He doesn't even go there at all. Luke clearly has a very different destination for us. And while I think that question is important, and we'll come to it in a minute, I want to make sure that we don't address that question in such a way that takes us away from the clear destination that Luke wants to take us from with this passage. So I know, having thrown all these questions up, this is going to be hard to do, but first for a moment, take your minds off Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? We're still in the passage, but the question is, are they Christians? I mean, what, how could God do this? All that. Just put them back burner for a second, okay? So ask a much easier question. What is the effect of this event on the rest of the first church? If you've got your Bible in front of you, you could look at it. Some of you might cast your minds back. Some of you might have seen it already. But Luke actually answers this question very, very straightforwardly. And he says it twice to make sure that we don't miss it. Okay, it's in verse 5 and it's in verse 11. And it's summed up by two words. And the two words are these. Great fear. Ananias dies. It says, great fear sees those who heard about it. Sapphira dies. Great fear sees the whole church and all of those who heard about it. And just to note on this, it doesn't then say, Luke doesn't then add in, how incredibly silly of them. They shouldn't have known fear. They should have trusted in God in this way and this way. What a terrible response, but oh well, we all learn from our lessons. Let's move on to a more cheery story. No, that's not what he says. It's, it's presented as an absolutely appropriate and good response that helped the church to grow. Acts 9.31 is probably the best place to see it. A few chapters later, a uh, summary statement of a real golden era for this early church. Okay, it says this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Uh, fear was something that helped them grow in a certain way. So Luke's intention clearly is including this incident in the account of the early church is to show how it led to a type of fear that's a good thing for the, for the early church, okay? And the implication for us reading it today must be that there is a good fear that can come as a result of this passage. It might sound really strange to you, but my prayer as I've been preparing this over and over again is that great fear in the right way would seize church central. As I've been preparing this sermon, I've been praying for myself. Would, as a result of this preparation, this delivery, this message, and dwelling in this message for a while, would great fear, in the right way, seize Johnny Meller? Okay, so I'm not being inconsistent in that. No, I, I want that to happen. But what do I mean in the right way? What kind of fear are we talking about? Well, again, just to kind of put you in another channel, uh, if you're interested in this in more detail, the, the fear of the Lord, which you mentioned specifically in Acts 9.31, which is overlap with what's going on in Acts 5 particularly. But I dealt with that in a sermon a short while ago, six months or so back, and it's on our website, and there's a blog post on it, and we'll link to it on social media this week, okay? So if you're in fear of the Lord, I've always struggled with that, go to that message, okay? I'm not saying it's perfect, but it deals with it in a number of ways, and there's a question raised and all that sort of stuff, okay? Um, but again, I don't want to overcomplicate this, because I think that when we get to Acts 5, the kind of fear here 
is actually fairly obvious. I don't, I don't think we need to rack our brains hugely. Think, what? That's a surprise. Well, why do they think that? Okay. Why are they afraid in Acts five? Well, surely they're simply afraid that God might do that to them. Surely that's the implication. They're afraid because they don't want to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. And actually, I think that's the response the Holy Spirit would like each of us to have as we read this incredibly sobering story. As I said, there'll be all sorts of questions involved in your head. How does it fit with this bit? How does that fit with what we know about God from here? And we're going to come to them in a minute. But the main message is simple in this passage. And it's this, and we cannot escape from it. Do not be casual about sin. Treat sin fearfully and avoid it like the absolute plague. That's got to be what we see in this passage. And when in, in about 10 minutes or so, I'd like to give a response to those here who the Holy Spirit is gently convicting you of sin at the moment, saying, sin like that. I'm going to give you a chance to say sorry. I'm going to give you a chance to what the Bible would say the correct response to sin is, is repent and start to turn away from those sort of things. And while I'm going to address the question I raised a moment ago, I want you to be clear, when that 10 minutes comes, I'm not going to have softened what I've just said. It's going to still be the same warning. Because I think that's the warning that the Holy Spirit brings us in this passage. However, I don't want us to have that warning and for it to distort our view of God. That's important as well. So now let's go to the question, how can God do this to his people? There's a passage really helpful on this, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, it might be worth turning to it. Again, it will appear there in a second, okay? 1 Corinthians is a letter written uh, by the Apostle Paul to a church, funnily enough, in a place called Corinth. And the church in Corinth, it had its issues, let's say. Okay, all churches have their issues, but this church... It had its issues, and it had its issues with sex, and it had its issues with people arguing openly about which leader of the church they liked best, okay? You thought Facebook caused arguments like that. (laughs) That was going on in the church in Corinth, okay? And it also had uh, issues with how they dealt with the bread and wine, okay? Depending on your church tradition, you might know that's communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, Mass, any of those things, but we know what that is, okay? Okay. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 32, Paul addresses this last issue. And he addresses it like this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What's happening? Well, Paul's clearly saying that just as uh, trying to look more generous than you are, actually, can get severely punished by God in this life, Acts 5, Saying just like that can happen, so can being irreverent with the Lord's Supper, okay? And that can bring God's judgment on us now. And uh, he chooses two ways that he says, in the Corinthians church, this has already happened to you through God bringing sickness as part of that judgment. And again, just to point out, that's not isolated in the Bible, okay? So there's a number of cases where that happens. And also through death, when it says in verse 30, a number of you have fallen asleep, It's not talking about an epidemic of drowsiness going on in the church. That's a euphemism for dying. That's how they talked about dying. That person's fallen asleep, okay? 
So it's very similar in that sense to Acts 5. But here, Paul gives us a little bit of explanation. He describes what this judgment is. And have you seen how how he describes it? It's very helpful for us. Even those extreme forms of judgment, he does not describe them as hostility towards an enemy of God. He describes it as discipline like you do for your children. And there's a massive difference between those two things. If I get punished in hostility, let's imagine I do something really silly and go up before a judge, okay? I'm being punished in hostility, okay, in a sense. And I would be punished perhaps to pay me back retribution for the crimes I've done. Or perhaps the judge is thinking of the good of people, but he's thinking of the good of other people. He's thinking, I want to punish you in a way that will deter other people from doing this sort of thing. Or I will punish you in a sense to, if it's really bad, to protect other people from the menace that is Johnny Meller. Okay? And that's why I'm going to punish you. But it's, it might be other people's good involved. It's not being done for my good. That's punishment and hostility. However, if I get disciplined... My discipline may well include all of the above of the things I've mentioned, but the strand running through it very clearly is, and it's for your good. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this to help you, to maybe help you grow as a human being, to help you learn a lesson, to somehow bring you a joy that you wouldn't have without this. Listen, we've got to be straight on this. Just because God loves us, it doesn't mean he won't discipline us. The opposite of that is true. Because he loves us, he does discipline us. And actually, because he loves us, it doesn't mean that sometimes he won't use reasonably extreme methods of discipline to do that. Especially when we are involving ourselves in things that are going to cause us significant harm. And the thing that in the Bible is involves in significant harm. With your kids, you might be more extreme if they put their hand, if you've got kids in a fire, that might be big. If they run out into the road, I mean, I think that kind of thing, you want to really, for me, it's like, I need to stop you doing that, okay? What's it for God? Well, God's very clear the thing that harms us the most is sin. It's sin. Sin isn't painted in the Bible as that thing that, that God doesn't like a lot. Like, it's kind of his marmite or the color mauve. For some reason, God doesn't like those things. So we just line up with him, do we? Yeah, okay, fair enough. That's not what sin is. Sin in the Bible is presented very clearly as a poison that corrupts us, that contorts us, that dehumanizes us, and ultimately destroys us. And therefore, God in his love does anything he can to rip us away from the poison that we drink so readily so often. Sometimes in the past when God's convicted me of sins, even when I've done the right thing, my response has been, all right then God, fair enough, I won't do it. I think I probably would have got away with it anyway, you know. But uh, if you don't want me to, fair enough. And what a hero I am, uh, I'm giving up so much. My, the sacrifices I make for you, God, you must be pleased that I'm on your team here. I don't know if anyone, I'm just probably a bad person, but uh, I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. I'm, I'm giving up so much for God. You know what, that's how it might feel, but that's not the reality. A a godly response in those situations would be to say, thank you, God, so much for saving me from destroying myself. Thank you for opening my eyes to what I was about to do, what I'm doing. Thank you for showing me that bottle of what I thought was lovely Merlot that went down so smoothly. Thank you for turning that bottle around and showing me, ah, on the back, skull and crossbones, poison do not drink thank you so much i will spit the poison out i will smash the bottle 
I don't want to corrupt myself. I don't want to destroy myself. I don't want to kill myself. Because whatever happens, and whether God steps in as he did with Ananias and Sapphira or not, our sin will lead to death in one way or another. And I'm not even just talking about, yes, we will die. The worst scenario would be that it leads to death, destruction for us, while we're still alive. Perhaps maybe the thing we should be afraid of most is that we get stuck in those sins and God looks down and goes, okay, hands off. Do you ever, do you ever have a feeling that that would be the worst? You know what, if God took me today, you know, because of something and stopped it getting worse, that's one thing. But what that thing consumes me and then consumes my marriage and then consumes my kids and ruins the church. You know, I fear that. But I also fear the extent that my loving Heavenly Father would go to to rip it away from that to a degree. Do you see? Maybe it was. We, we don't know. But maybe it was that that's what was happening here. Maybe God is mercifully removing his beloved children at this point so their hypocrisy doesn't completely consume them. We don't know. We, we've no idea. Whatever the case, the message this passage is clear. We must treat sin fearfully and should be afraid of the lengths God may go to to flush it out of our system. God loves his children, but that does not mean he won't take extreme measures to smash that bottle that we cherish. It's a bottle of poison. So let's finish, and we are finishing now, but with the final question. I just want to land on, because I think it's very important just as we apply this, uh, is well, why are these guys? Why does he do this to Ananias and Sapphira for this sin at this time? And while there's other things, he doesn't tend to do this so much. Why here? And again, got to say, in a sense, we don't know. Just not sure. Um, but I think there are two things we can probably say. Probably these two things are in the mix. And they're very, very relevant to us. I think as Church Central, West Side in the 21st century. Why, does, why these guys? Well, firstly, because of the specific time and place they were living in. Okay? As we've looked through Acts so far, We'll have seen that this is a monumental time in human history. Not just in the history of the church and Christian stuff. This is for all human beings. The birth of the church. What's the church? The church is the vehicle by which Jesus is working out his salvation in the world to the ends of the earth. Okay? The birth of the church is a monumental thing for the human race. And we see at that time then that, that God coming close to birth his church in a way that we can be quite envious of. I probably think in a good way, actually. So the other way, you look at kind of the healings in the book of Acts, and we say, whoa, we'd love God to come close to us in a way that would bring healings like that. Would we like that? Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, we would. We'd love that. We look at the community in the book of Acts. And think, oh, God, if only you come close and bring this sense of community that we see in, in the book of Acts we don't quite see yet in our church. Would we like that to happen? Yeah, we would. Of course we would. What about Peter and John, a rich preacher another week? These are un- ordinary, unschooled men, but they've been with Jesus. And you look at, whoa, I'm pretty ordinary. I'm pretty untrained in that sort of way. I'd like to be the, have the boldness and courage of those guys. I'd like God to come close to us that does that. Would we like that stuff? Okay. I think you probably know where I'm going to go with this. But we won't get Acts 1 to 4 without Acts 5. If we want God to come close to us, and you know what? As leaders of the church, we believe he is going to do that in a new way. We wouldn't be teaching from this book if we didn't 
have faith that God was moving us in that direction. But we've got to get ready for him coming and be more proactive in healing the sick. Fantastic. And in growing our generosity and courage. Magnificent. But as he does that, he would also be more proactive in dealing with our sin. And it might not be like this. It might be just exposing us. We thought, no, no one's ever going to find that. <sighs> Suddenly out. We've seen a measure of that stuff already, actually. It might be just people going, well, they're no longer with us anymore. They're over there. Has that really happened to them? Is that really where they're at in their life now? That kind of stuff happens. But as God comes close, he, he, he won't have sin there. He won't let it lie hidden in that way. And it would be much better for us. My urgent plea to you would be to deal with these things now rather than wait to find out what the writer of the Hebrews says when he says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a serious plea. And you might think I'm over-egging it, you know. But I don't want that for anybody. Second thing, final thing as we finish, it's also because of the specific sin involved. As I've said all along, I think this passage has relevance for us in sin in general. Delib- don't deliberately do anything God has told you not to do. Okay, it's as simple as that. And if your sin's not the same as Ananias and Sapphira's, I think this is still very relevant to us. However, I just want to speak to those of you now who are thinking, okay, just about made it through this morning. Okay, well and good with Ananias and Sapphira, pretty heavy, you know, but not for me. Because in a, few, in a minute or so, Johnny's going to get people to repent, and I'm not doing anything, the big repentance stuff. Not sleeping around, not looking at porn all day, not getting hammered at the weekends, not taking drugs, haven't burgled anybody recently. Great, there might be people here, need to sort that stuff out before it gets too late, but for me that's fine. And you're thinking about getting the kids, maybe even what you have for lunch, hope you sing that song in the worship, that sort of thing. Okay? If you're anywhere in that category, I want you to give me one minute, just one minute. That's not a preacher's minute, that is a 60 second minute, okay? Maybe 80, but you know. Okay, because notice this. Ananias and Sapphira weren't doing any of that stuff. They weren't doing any of those big sins. What were they doing? They were pretending to be something that they weren't in God's people. That's what they were doing. They were putting on a show. They were going on with God. They were loving Jesus. And they were heroically supporting the church. But they weren't. They were faking it. People I'm sure were asking me, Ananias, how are you doing? I'm fine. Ananias was not fine. Each week, Sapphira, Sapphira, what are you struggling with in your faith at the moment? Struggling in faith? Everything's good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. It's all good. It wasn't all good. And then one day, it's like, I'll just, I'll just tell you a bit. We've got a bit more from it than that. Boom. Okay? They were faking it. They already had a fear when they went to see Peter at the beginning of the chapter, but it was completely the wrong fear. They had no fear of the God who sees everything. They had lots of fear over the other people they thought they could trick. And if any of you today, oh, I just want to face straight up with all of you, I think every one of us has lived like that in church at some point. Okay, just want to, I know I have, okay? I'm still standing here by the grace of God. And I'd like to say to you, if that's where you are now, I want to end a heavy message. I understand it's serious. This Bible is serious. This Bible is serious because God takes our lives seriously. That's why. I want to end a heavy message with encouragement for you. God's kindness is here for you. God's grace is here for you. God's love is here for you. And I know that because of one thing. Because you're still alive. And you're still here. 
but all of us, please can we come to our kind, awesome, loving, fearsome, gracious, just Heavenly Father and spit out the poison of pretense and fear of people and any other poison that we've got.